As difficult as the situation is, to do nothing would also be a choice. And I believe it would be the wrong choice because it would be tantamount to ceding control of a global shipping route which is economically vital to a dangerous militant group which is backed by Iran and putting innocent lives at risk. That was Rishi Sunak in the House of Commons defending his decision to join the United States in bombing the poorest country in the Middle East. The dangerous militant group he refers to are the Houthis, who he says are putting innocent lives at risk. What he doesn't mention is that the Red Sea blockade is only being carried out because of Israel's genocidal campaign in Gaza. Israel, of course, hasn't just put innocent lives at risk. That's the charge Sunak lays at the Houthis. Israel has already killed 25,000 people. Clearly, to the UK government, that's less important than keeping costs low for commercial shipping. So Sunak's position, supported by Labour, is predictably devoid of moral integrity. But the Red Sea blockade itself was anything but predictable. When Israel first launched its deadly war on Gaza, few foresaw that it would be war-torn Yemen and the Houthis who would most successfully come to the Palestinians' aid. So how did this happen? To find out how the Middle East's poorest country put the West on the ropes, and what might happen next, I spoke to Seamus Malakef Zali. Seamus is a freelance journalist based in Beirut who's written about Yemen and the Houthis on his excellent Substack. You can find the link to that in the show notes. Seamus Malakef Zali, welcome to Crash Course. Happy to be here. Uh, I wanted to start by, you know, finding out about you because, you know, I've, I've just subscribed to your Substack. Very interesting. Follow you on Twitter. Um, but what, what are you doing in, in Beirut? Uh, I mean, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I moved here from Paris, um, I think finally maybe several months ago. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to be closer to the field that I write about. Um, and I was um, pretty dissatisfied with Europe. And uh, yeah, no, no, no. I, I've been writing from here and being close to everything makes it far easier than otherwise would have been. And I mean, what is the atmosphere in Beirut? I mean, are people on edge because they're sort of worried that a regional war could break out or I mean, I mean, how would you describe it? It's, it's, a, it's a bit difficult to describe. When you talk interpersonally with people, obviously people are worried. But if you were to go, uh, you know, to bars, to restaurants, um, malls, I don't think you would have any idea that there was anything uh, amiss. Um, uh, I, I talked about this um, in a different interview, but the goings-on of southern Lebanon and south Beirut even are kind of seen as being in an almost different uh, reality than how things are here in Beirut, in Beirut proper. Um, things that happen in the South don't affect, or at least are not supposed to affect, uh, things here. Um, so while there are obviously, there's, there's fear and anxiety about it, um, it's not palpable in a way that I think it would be palpable, uh, in America or, or for example, in the UK, if similar things were to occur. Yeah, because I mean, there was a there was a targeted, you know, assassination drone strike. Was it? I think it was. in 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 Beirut proper, but that hasn't sort of freaked everyone out completely. Uh, well, it was it was only. I mean, when I talk about distances to people, they're kind of they the worry of it doesn't go away. But like that, it was just outside Beirut proper, but it was about two miles away from my apartment, for instance. But even that short amount of distance, that that is like a whole national border to a lot of people. Um, so no, it doesn't, uh, it, it hasn't produced like, um, like a run on the markets, um, you know, people into emptying out store shelves. No. Um, conflict war has been such a constant occurrence and reoccurrence that pe people, I think, know um, what to do in this sort of situation. It's not an immediate source of panic. Um, but no, there's still things bubbling beneath the surface as it were and I, I should do a full show on 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 lebanon soon maybe i'll get you back on um let's go to the main event though of today's show which is yemen 
Um, now I'm I'm going to go real back to basics. I'm not an expert on Yemen, but I've sort of spent the weekend googling it. Um, it's on the southern part of the Arabian Peninsula, so it has a long border with Saudi Arabia. You might like to sort of quickly um, get up your Google Maps if you're listening to this to get an idea of, of precisely where Yemen is. Um, it's got a population of 32 million, so a medium-sized country. I think about 48th in the world. Um, but the most striking thing about Yemen for, for I think probably most outside observers, but for me, sort of Googling it this weekend, it's the Middle East's poorest country with a GDP per capita of only $2,000. So, so to put that in perspective, um, GDP per capita in its neighbor, Saudi Arabia, is $60,000. In Egypt, um, one of the biggest countries, or well, the biggest country in, in the Middle East in terms of population, it's $16,000. Um, and then in Israel, $50,000. And even in the occupied Palestinian territories, so that's the West Bank and Gaza, it's $7,000. So that's GDP per capita per year. Um, of course, that was before um, the Gaza war, which has completely decimated um, Palestinian society in Gaza. So that's probably looks a little bit different now. Um, how should we make sense of this? Why sort of is Yemen so much poorer than its neighbors? I mean, it's a combination of constant war and a failure by successive governments to um, build up the economy because of corruption and also because of the massive foreign influence that comes into Yemen, takes money, but then doesn't produce anything in its wake that can create self-sufficiency. Um, but to start with, I mean, Yemen is already at a geographic disadvantage that other countries in the Arabian Peninsula are not. Uh, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, uh, the UAE, all of these countries have um, significant oil reserves that exceed our wildest imaginations. That's how they made their dough. Um, but uh, Yemen has oil. Um, you know, there, there's a refinery in Aden and, uh, and, and some places elsewhere, but not as much as other countries in the Arabian Peninsula. Uh, so it, it can't rely on oil revenues as much as it, as it would otherwise. In addition, the wars have um, obviously impacted that kind of production, um, that kind of extraction. Um, other countries don't have uh, a lot of arable land to farm on, but they could rely on those revenues. But in addition to lower amounts of oil, Yemen does not have a lot of land that it can farm on. I mean, I'll, I'll put it to you. What percentage of Yemen do you think is possible to be farmed? Just throw out any number. Um, seven. Lower seven. than that. Wow. It's, it's, it's 2 point, I want to say 3%, 2.5%. And that's, and it's not a small country. And so you have a very limited amount that you can farm on. You don't have a lot of oil, um, not as much as your neighbors. Um, lots of conflict, lots, lots of, um, foreign influence operations, lots of corruption. And you can't, and now I'll put, I'll put another comparison point. Um, Abu Dhabi is the main oil producing emirate in the UAE. Dubai doesn't have a lot of oil. It relies on tourism. And the reason it's able to build such a, a touristic metropolis for itself is because it's perceived as being an extremely safe part of the Middle East. It's its own kind of um, utopia. Um, Yemen cannot rely on this either. It's war-torn. Um, you can't build up an economy like that, a touristic economy like that. Um, so all, all of these different factors, when they're combined into one country, create circumstances that are not easily um, stepped out of. Um, it, it's sort of similar um, to Lebanon's case as it is here. Um, where you have war and there's an attempt to extract yourself out of that position, but the corruption of successive governments results in a situation um, that is uh, unextractable out of, uh, to use a, a kind of um, uh, poor phrasing. Um, no, no, no. It's a uh, lot, lots of lots of factors in there, but they all kind of go to the same. Uh, cause for the most part yeah and when you talk about um you know so little of the land being able to sort of be used for farming is it am i imagining deserts and mountains is that sort of the, the majority I, of I yeah 
Yeah, I mean, obviously there are you know, wetter parts of wetter parts of Yemen. Um, things that uh, parts of Yemen that are um, much more livable. But for a while, it was um, assumed that Sanaa would be the first capital city in the world to run out of water uh, completely. Um, that hasn't happened, thankfully. But that's the kind of precarious situation uh, that Yemen was in for a while uh, and still is to, to, a, to a great extent. So as I say, I'm not an expert on Yemen. So I, I googled... Uh, I, I like to do this or just Google the, the very basic question I'm asking and read the first article that comes up. So I Googled, why is Yemen so poor? And the first article was from Slate in 2010. Um, and that was before um, the, you know, the, the more recent civil war, which we will continue to, to talk about in a moment. So they gave three reasons. Conflict, which you've kind of discussed already. Corruption, which you've also touched upon. They also said cat um, was one of the reasons Yemen is so poor. Now, cat is a leaf you chew on um, with an effect similar to speed, um, you do find lots of people sort of chewing it in, in 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 London in sort of certain sort of Ethiopian bars and the like. Although maybe they did ban it recently. That was a news. That was a news story. Well, I used to have when I lived in um off the Woolworth Road in South London. I became friends with. I think he was an Ethiopian neighbour, um, and we went to uh, a bar every now and again, and he'd sort of share his cat. So you, you did used to get a lot of cat bars in London, but I do think actually, now I think about it, they did ban it, and that was sort of a news story about 10 years ago. This was when I was in my early 20s, so yeah, about a decade ago. But um, but yeah, so it's, it's, it's uh, in this article, so the reason they said cat was so significant is because a large proportion of, especially the men in Yemen, are addicted to it, um, farmers sort of give over their land to cat instead of food. Um, it chews up, chews up, sort of silly word to use. It, it eats up um, a lot of people's income um, and makes people somewhat unproductive. I don't know. Does, uh, does that seem fair to you? Or do you think this is a somewhat I mean, um, ridiculous analysis that Slate was giving? Uh, I mean, okay. Well, I mean, I, we shouldn't beat around the bush. Cat uh, is a extremely popular thing in Yemen. It does consume a, a huge amount of the agricultural land that that Yemen does use, um, but placing it on the same level of um, responsibility for the condition that Yemen is in as as war and the endemic corruption. I mean, the president, the previous president, um, before this was in power for thirty years, more than thirty years. Um, the Qat thing is downwind of these things. Like when you have an economy that is so beset by conflict, that is so beset by the effects of a government that does very little to um, build the country into a model of self-sufficiency, um, when it is at the mercy of austerity policies that are pushed by the IMF and other organizations, um, you as a farmer in the poorest nation in the Middle East, um, what is what is your your thought process? Either I can try and do something on my own that might, you know, uh, try to start a movement on my own where I, I make the country into some sort of self-sufficient paradise, or I can plant a cash crop that is immensely profitable, will bring in a lot of income for me. And I don't have to do a lot to produce. I mean, that is very, very easy to grow. Lots of people use it, so you get a lot of money. And then you can just kind of rinse repeat. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, but it, it's, a, it's a cannibalistic process because it sucks up so much water. It um, takes up so much of the, of the economic output that, you know, it, it, it locks you into a cycle that you're not. Again, I keep using this phrase. It, it, it's cyclical. You can't you can't get yourself out of it very easily. Um, but no, no, I don't think it's not necessarily incorrect the slate position, but the way that it's framed, especially the part of it being uh, you said unproductive. Um, I think that that's a bit. I don't know. It, it, it's a, it's uh, missing the forest for the trees and, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, that, I, I'd say that sounds persuasive to me. I mean, it's a bit like if someone told you that Afghanistan was poor because they grow poppy seeds. Yeah, like, like I think, like, like cause and effect a bit mixed up. Heroin's a bit as you know, it's a problem, but I feel like there was a there was another thing that happened that might have you know 
contributed to it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's move on to the Hoofies. Um, who are they? How did they emerge? I mean, uh, Hossein al-Houthi, who is the founder of the movement, um, he was originally a parliamentarian um, when Yemen was first unified. Um, part of the, uh, he's a Zaidi uh, branch of Shiism, of Islam. Um, after the, uh, the first civil war that um, rocks Yemen as a unified country, only a few years after uh, it becomes a unified country, uh, Al-Houthi returns to his home province of Sa'ada um, and he creates a revivalist movement intended to renew the faith that he believes is being unfairly and malignly influenced from Saudi Arabia. Um, Saudi Arabia has placed its thumb on the scale of Yemeni politics for decades. And the concern that al-Houthi had was that Salafism, uh, you know, Wahhabism, was influencing Yemeni society uh, greatly. Um, wasn't necessarily wrong about that either. Um, and over the course of the next uh, 10 or so years, it grows in influence. Um, and around when the war on terror starts, it becomes a militant uh, organization um, because, you know, what what do the majority of the Arabs see when the war on terror starts? You know, this immense bombardment of uh, Iraq and Afghanistan, it moved a lot of people. And uh, Hussein al-Houthi was, was, um, was one of those people. Um, they begin an insurgency against the Yemeni government after uh, President Saleh um, tries to arrest Hussein al-Houthi. And over the course of the next uh, 10 or so years, they build alliances, they move in through different provinces, and they assert more and more power within uh, Yemeni society. Um, and right around um, the Arab Spring, they are become a, a major power player. And so from my reading on this, it's, it seems a bit like, I mean, many of the groups sort of I've been reading about over the past um, sort of few weeks seem to have sort of a, a similar origin story, which is they start out as a somewhat sort of cultural movement with sort of religious ideologies, so it's the Muslim Brotherhood or Hamas, for example, and then something causes them to become a political force. So in this situation, so the Houthis, they, they used to have, summer camps called the believing youth um, and i think sort of like twenty thousand people would, would turn up to these and sort of as you're saying this would be in part to sort of push forward um sort of zaidi the zaidi form of islam as opposed to the the salafi form that they saw as sort of coming from from saudi arabia but then you're saying it's it's the war on terror which sort of makes them this political force and that's when they get this this slogan that um, many of our audience will be aware of because it's been sort of broadcast um, quite a lot. They, they adopt this in 2003. God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, curse upon the Jews, victory to Islam. Um, so suppose, I mean, the, the one that will stand out to people there is the curse upon the Jews bit. Um, why is this their priority in, in 2003? Sort of like, why do they see this as the motivating force of their movement? I mean, Al-Houthi emphasized seeing world politics through the Quranic lens. And so inevitably, when you try and look at world politics through the lens of Islamism, what do you inevitably come to the conclusion of? You see parallels between the warnings that were issued about the Christians and the Jews, and then you can very easily imprint them on America, which is being led by a Christian, uh, and Israel, which is being, it's, it's a Jewish state. Um, so this slogan is a manifestation uh, of, of that viewpoint. Um, though interestingly, uh, at least officially, um, the Houthis backed a secular Republican governance for Yemen. So the slogans here were, were meant to be um, 
sort of an ideological invocation, but the state that they wanted was not, uh, for comparison, Iran. They didn't want an, an outwardly um, Islamist, I, I guess in their case, like an imamate type state, uh, which, which I found sort of interesting. Yeah, because in part when I was sort of reading about this, it, it sounds like the original sort of believing youth movement and sort of the the Zaidi Shias, they wanted a sort of more pluralist potentially um, society than sort of the Salafists coming from um, Saudi Arabia. So it's, it's, my initial reading sort of suggested they were sort of, they were initially a sort of moderate movement that was sort of um, sort of more keen on pluralism, but then something sort of changed down the line. Um, Would that be fair to say? Well, when we use moderate, uh, that term, I think, carries different connotations uh, in the Western countries than when we talk about um, Arab Arab states and Arab societies. Plur like they, when you talk to Houthi officials, well, not when you talk to Houthi officials, but when you hear Houthi officials, when you hear what they have to say, they, they place an emphasis on democracy on on maintaining the um, Yemeni state, on maintaining the republic, but they are not advocating um, like like that. The term you use, pluralism. I think I think in the West you immediately kind of conjure, it conjures up images of like I don't know, like a liberal center left left leaning type society, whereas that is not the society that uh, Ansarullah, which the Houthi movement calls themselves, what they envision. Um, they envision, at least outwardly and officially, they envision something where women are included, where, where uh, socialists are included, where um, Sunnis are included along with the Shias, but that is not in service of, uh, you know, Marxism, socialism as the driving ideological banner. It's a very, what, what, I, what I find interesting is that uh, there was a, a document that was published by the Houthi-led government uh, several years ago in English, where it went into a great amount of detail about what the programs they wanted to implement were, um, what the goals were for the various ministries and so on and so forth. But even though there's a lot of detail there's not a lot there that you and I would consider controversial. Um, they're talking about, you know, funding public services, um, bettering education. Um, very, very, very few people would disagree with the idea of using the government to better these, these things. Um, the reason why Ansarullah was able to gain all the support and was able to unite so many people behind them was because as a big tent uh, coalition, you theoretically could um, see what you wanted for Yemen in what they had to promote. It, it was it was a very uh, clearly it ended up being a very good strategic move. Yep. So we'll come back to this. I think when we talk about how the Houthis have run the parts of Yemen they control, um, but that would be jumping a few steps. And before then, we need to go back to the Arab Spring, as you say. And because this is when the Houthis or Ansar Allah, they become a real national force in, in Yemen. And, and so as far as I understand it, the basics here, the Houthis take part in the revolution against Ali Abdullah Saleh. They take part in the, the Arab Spring. Um, and Saleh, like many of the other Arab leaders, you know, who, who were subject to rebellions um, in the Arab Spring, he'd been in power for a very long time, for 34 years. Um, but um, Saleh is overthrown in part with the help of the Houthis. So this is one of the Arab leaders um, that the Arab Spring takes out. And Salah um, is replaced by his deputy, Mansour Hadi. But this is where it gets complicated because within a couple of years, the Houthis switch sides and end up allying with Salah. So the deposed president, their former enemy, who they helped to overthrow, and then the really big moment comes in 2014 because this is when the Houthis, along with Salah, mount an uprising against the new president, Hadi. And together, the Houthis and Salah take control of Yemen's capital, Sana'a. And this is then the start of a long and bloody civil war. So, so can you explain what happened here? Why did the Houthis participate in the Arab Spring 
against Salah, only to then ally with him. And what was their problem with the new regime of Mansour Hadi, so the man who became Yemen's president after the Arab Spring? Why did um, the Houthis rebel and revolt against Hadi, um, ultimately um, leading to a civil war? I mean, I don't think they necessarily switched sides. I think uh, in Saleh's um, instance, um, they recognized that Saleh had a lot of influence, still a lot of influence, still had power that he could throw around, but he was also in a very desperate position. And thus, if you make an alliance with him, you that 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 is something that is uh, advantageous to you. And of course, when they had no you or use for him, they discarded him, and then he was killed uh, in 2017 when um, he tried to mount some sort of uh, power play uh, in Sana'a. Um, but the reason why uh, the Houthi movement broke with the new Yemeni government in, uh, in the way that it did was because the Hadi government that succeeded Saleh, I mean, mo- most people... Like, okay, I, I, I would, again, I'll, I'll postulate this to you. Uh, long-time government has been overthrown. Um, decades upon decades of, of corrupt governance in which political institutions were, were disrespected, democracy crumbled. A new presidential election is called, and there is one candidate who is from the same party. And guess how, like, what the percentage was in this presidential election 2012 in Yemen? That went to Hadi. I, I think I know this, that there wasn't another candidate. Yeah. So it was a sort of referendum on what you could only say yes or no. There was no alternative candidate to vote for. So I'm going to say the high 90s. No, it was 100%. They quoted it as 100%. Oh, 100%, okay. But like, like even like even like Saddam or like Bashar al-Assad, they had the good sense to be like, as you're saying, in the high 90s, they still give like a little bit there. Uh, Hadi didn't do that. So already from the outset, there are worries within uh, different political factions in Yemen that the new government is going to do things very much the same way. But there is cause for hope. There is a constitutional dialogue that takes place in, uh, I believe, 2013, 2014, in which many of the political factions in Yemen are called to Sana'a, and they are, they, they are tasked with producing a new constitution, putting in their, giving their input, and... This is where Ansar Allah, as I was talking about before, uh, one of the negotiators um, who is a, who is a, a scholar of law um, is at the conference and he advocates essentially rewriting the constitution to remove uh, redundancies and contradictions and affirming that secularism should reign in Yemen because a, I believe the, the, the justification that he put forward was that a state cannot be loyal to, it cannot derive its power from both God and the people. Like a state needs to, um, I, I, I'm paraphrasing and I apologize if, if I um, have got this piece of information wrong, but the justification that he put forward was that the state derives its power from the people, but the people derive their power from God, I believe was what it was. So this is, this is the, the kind of, this is the way that Ansar law envisions the the state being so while this might again this might be cause for hope the negotiator is then assassinated during this process along with uh, a few other uh, negotiators um so already but the the houthi yeah. negotiator is assassinated or, yeah, and is, yeah. he, is he assassinated by the houthis or by some someone opponent? else i don't believe that the person was ever uh, identified but clearly someone did not want the houthis placing their their thumb on the scale in this way and then the thing that really lights the fire under everything is that the proposal comes through from the Hadi government to theoretically make everyone happy. It's a plan for federalism in Yemen. Again, I need to emphasize the difference that certain terms mean in Western states and uh, Arab states. When we talk about federalism in America, that's not a dirty word. That's just how things are. In the UK, I don't think many people, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think many people think that the devolution that happened uh, under Blair, for example, was a bad thing. People like that. Um, but federalism, as suggested in places like Lebanon and places like Yemen, are 
typically trotted out in order to uh, divide and conquer political opponents or to separate populations from other populations in order to sabotage multicultural societies. Um, here in Lebanon, uh, there's a big push for federalism by the Christians because they don't want to associate with Muslims and, and Muslim politics and Muslim societies. Uh, and in Yemen, the, the proposal, and like you look over it for more than like 10 seconds and you immediately see the problems. Uh, is essentially, Yemen would be separated into a bunch of different regions, um, all given their own certain level of, of sub-sovereignty. South Yemen, which a whole war was fought over several years ago, the secession of it, uh, would be split up, therefore dividing power between these, these brokers. Um, Saada, where the Houthis were, would be isolated even more than it already was. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's right up at the border of Saudi Arabia, um, and its isolation was, was somewhat of a boon to the Houthis, but also it was, the isolation was, was part of why they felt somewhat discriminated against. So, so you're making that, that situation worse. You're taking away natural resources from poor populations, and you're giving Sana'a, the capital, more power than it otherwise would have. Um, it, it's it, it's an it's a obvious disaster. So uh, Ansarullah rejects this. The southern movement uh, rejects this. And uh, shortly afterward, um, the Houthis, who have been very slowly moving in towards Sana'a, they finally go into the capital and... First, they push Hadi into a power share agreement, um, and then Hadi resigns, and then the whole Saudi back now Saudi back government goes into uh, Aden, sets up a capital in exile, and now yeah, from there there are now two parallel governments, and yeah, from the civil war that's when the civil war starts. And um, this, I'm I'm not sure if we've mentioned this already, but this might be relevant for the audience. So, in terms of this issue of federalism. Um, there are sort of quite distinct groups in different parts of Yemen to some degree, is that correct? So, so as far as I understand, the Zaidi Shias are sort of in a mountainous region or, you know, based in a mountainous region in the northwest. And then you've got sort of flatter regions by the sea where it's more Sunni Muslims. Is that, am I on some kind that, of that's, right that's, that's roughly correct. That's roughly correct. Yeah. So then, so then that sort of power sharing deal with Hadi breaks down and then we get the civil war. Oh yeah, we get a civil war because Hadi is is now sort of set up his alternative government in Aden, which is on the sea, used to be a British colony, um, and the Houthis are set up in the capital Salah. Correct. Yeah, and and Salah, and um, so I mean, yet Saudi Arabia gives its full support to Hadi, um, creates this multinational coalition of Arab states. Um, in order to um, dislodge the Houthis, uh, gives the operations absurd names, and from there, I mean, it's a it's a total catastrophe. And let's talk about yeah the, the sort of international element of this. So the traditional story um, is that sort of the, the Saudis are backing Hadi. They think that sort of like I suppose he's easier to control. Is he also a Sunni Muslim? And the Saudis are Sunni. And then you have the Houthis who are Shia. And they're backed by Iran. Iran sort of quite happy to have a group which are you know closer to them on on the Saudi border. Obviously, there's a long term um, rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. So you end up getting some support for the Houthis from Iran, and then loads of support for Hadi and that sort of officially internationally recognised government um, from the Saudi Arabians. And then the Saudis sort of start this sort of catastrophic bombing campaign, essentially. Um, but in terms of the international dimensions, am I sort of on the right track? Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, can, can you talk a bit more about the consequences of Saudi Arabia's involvement? So they're, of course, using Western-supplied weapons and intelligence. And this was all long before we were talking about Gaza. It was, it was the Yemeni civil war and the Saudi bombing campaign in Yemen, which was described as the world's worst humanitarian crisis. And that was for very good reason. The numbers are, are horrifying. So... According to the United Nations, 150,000 people were directly killed in the fighting. So, you know, had violent deaths in the Yemeni civil war. Um, not all of that by Saudi bombing, of course. Um, but the UN also estimate that more than 227,000 people 
died as a result of an ongoing famine and lack of healthcare facilities due to the war. Um, and this was in large part, somewhat as we're seeing in, in Gaza right now, what we're seeing Israel do in Gaza, the, the Saudis bombed hospitals, they bombed ports, um, and there was also a blockade on, on Yemen stopping essential supplies getting in. Um, so can you talk about that? Can you talk about the extent of the, the human catastrophe suffered by the Yemenis as a result of this war? I mean, I, the thing to understand uh, about this that I think makes everything make much more sense is that Yemen, like Lebanon, like Gaza, are, they are import-heavy economies. They have to, imp- because of the situation that they're in, um, from all different causes, they are reliant on food coming in from different countries. They, they don't produce the food themselves that they need. Um, and this makes sieges, this makes military assaults that much more devastating. I want to say in Yemen's case, it's even worse than here in Lebanon, which is, which is in, in obscenity. I think it's like 90% of the food that Yemenis need, they import from abroad, they don't grow uh, within Yemeni territory. So the blockades that were implemented by sea, by air, um, were devastating in themselves. And then, as you said, they bombed hospitals, they bombed infrastructure galore. They had no scruples about bombing uh, civilians constantly. There's a video uh, that I, I think I posted a little bit ago where after the president of the Yemeni government, the Houthis set up, it was essentially the de facto president of Yemen, because Hadi was in Riyadh. He had been based in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. They assassinated the president by drone strike. And then at the funeral procession, where, where hundreds of thousands of people were, the Saudis then dropped another bomb on that funeral procession, like full view, everybody televised live. Um, it was, and, and it went on for years I'm still kind of in awe at how long this went on for, with full support from the Americans, uh, with aid by, by um, other nations. Cholera, disease like that, uh, spread rapidly. Uh, more people died of hunger in Yemen than died from the bombs. I mean, I mean just we're, we're talking about uh, millions of cases of uh, acute hunger that Yemenis were, were beset by. Um, not only was this an immense humanitarian disaster that was entirely preventable, um, it didn't even lead to anything that the Saudis could consider a victory. Because, okay, the Yemenis have been brutalized, they've been devastated, uh, they were already the poorest country in the Middle East, and now they become even poorer, even, more, even, uh, even worse off. But not only are the Houthis still there, they have consolidated control even further. And militarily, they're even more capable than they were in 2015. All of these people died for, for no, I mean, not that I would want it to be the case, but like the Saudis gained truly nothing out of this uh, essentially sadistic venture. Uh, it's actually incredible how there, there was just no strategic victory here. I, I keep repeating myself, but I, I'm just kind of, amazed at how badly this went for them and i mean they have they have you know belatedly obviously after many many deaths sort of come to realize that and that's why mohammed bin salman sort of you know uh, there's somewhat of a sort of de facto truce isn't there and mbs is basically looking for peace and as we'll get on to later that's one of the reasons he doesn't seem to be joining in on in you know operation prosperity guardian but we won't jump ahead to that just yet um in terms of how the houthis did win because uh, you know the, the way this was discussed in the west was you know saudi arabia have this overwhelming force um the yemenis you know they fight in sandals or sort of whatever sort of um um stereotypical sort of vision we'd get sold um about the yemenis the idea was sort of of course the saudis are going to win it's just a, a matter of time um but lots of people will die in the interim oh, oh, oh dear you know th- that to me was sort of the dominant position in the west but the houthis not just survived, but sort of ended up strengthened after this whole process. So how should that be sort of understood? Is that because, you know, the Saudis killed so many civilians that the, the Yemenis sort of said, actually, no, the Houthis, these are our real defenders, or what happened? I mean, I, I don't, I don't want to maybe use that position. Um, I think 
it's a matter of there are different thresholds of victory when it comes to either the aggressor or the guerrilla fighter. The guerrilla fighter to win, all he has to do is survive. That's all he has to do to achieve victory. But the aggressor, when they put forward a goal, if they don't achieve that goal completely, then they've lost. And the goal that Saudi Arabia put forward, it wasn't possible um, before they implemented the war, but the tactics that they implemented during the war were, I think, always doomed to failure. Um, I mean, uh, the UAE and the Saudis, they, they backed forces against each other. The UAE, at one point, backed southern separatists against the Saudi-led government, even though they were within the same coalition. Um, the Saudis relied primarily on huge bombardments, um, but did not dedicate, you know, they, they didn't think about like doing a full ground invasion from Saudi territory. Not that that would have worked, but like the, the, the task that they had put forward probably would have necessitated a dedication, like a commitment like that. Um, and it, it's, these are the, the, the tactical issues that all of these Arab states had. I mean, they are the same issues that plagued Arab militaries throughout the past few decades. Um, Saleh himself uh, talked about the purpose of Arab militaries very clearly, very bluntly. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but he told a reporter, like, point blank, like, the Yemeni army is not for anything but putting down <clears throat> internal rebellion and for doing military parades. That was what he said like full on this is what it's for and this is what a lot of different Arab militaries for they have a lot of u.s weaponry but they are not trained for asymmetric warfare and the houthis for a decade they had fought asymmetrically against the Yemeni military and they were not like like the whole thing of why they were able to defeat saudi arabia and why they're able to withstand american bombardment now is because they don't keep their munitions in a single place. They move things around uh, very often. They don't stay in one place. They're they, like that. That simple fact of being mobile, of of thinking uh, like not with the amount of weapons that you have, but like what you can do with your fighters. That's such a simple thing. Like I, I shouldn't have to say it, but thinking with what you have. Is a thing that really didn't occur to a lot of Arab states. Yeah. So the, the, the Saudis basically saw the Houthis as a rebellion that they would put down using sort of overwhelming force. But you know, you, you can't bomb uh, a um, resistance movement out of existence when they're sort of very capable of sort of spreading their weapons, etc. One last thing before we move on to sort of the current events in the Red Sea: um, how the Houthis ran the parts of Yemen they do control. So they now, um, you know essentially victorious in the civil war. They govern a population of 20 million people. Um, we hear lots of things or sort of, sort of said in, in the Western media, they brought back slavery. Um, they are, you know, incredibly repressive to women. Um, I have to say, this is one area where I'm, 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 I don't really know much at all. So I'm going to go to you. Um, how have they sort of governed um, the people of Yemen and sort of how should we understand the sort of Western stories about the Houthis? I mean, this is this is the thing. Um, obviously, what they've said outwardly is that they want a secular, want a want a uh, a republican state, one that's centrally governed. But there has absolutely been, I guess, the term would be mission creep um, of the Islamist base that they have. Um, I want to use that term just because if I think about. The primary backers of, of the Houthis, Iran, the shift to Islamic governance there in 1979-1980 was so swift, so dramatic. The interim government fell, you know, like like a pack of cards, and it was the idea of secular governments was done away with uh, entirely. Um, that really hasn't happened. The secular institutions uh, still exist, but you know, gradually, you know, more Islamist uh, laws, taxation, 
uh, practices have have come into play. And as well, I mean, it's not. It's also not a purely. Um, I don't know what the word would be. What I'm trying to say is that the, the Al-Houthi family, um, it still holds a, a great deal of influence over the movement. Merely characterizing them as just the Houthis plural is, is a misnomer. It's a much larger organization than that. So e- even though it's, a, it's a technically still a, you know, a, a civilian, secular, Republican, democratic state, the Al-Houthi tribe still holds a lot of positions of power. Um, Abdul Malik al-Houthi, uh, who was the brother, brother of Hussein al-Houthi, um, when Hussein al-Houthi was, was died, Abdul Malik al-Houthi took over the organization. He is the commander, uh, as it were, of the whole, of the whole thing. And then Muhammad Ali al-Houthi, who is another brother, uh, he runs the uh, Supreme Revolutionary Committee, or the Revolutionary Committee, I think it's just called now. Um, and he was also formerly the president of the government. He was the de facto president of Yemen for a while. Uh, and uh, Yahya al-Houthi, he's the current minister of education. Like, the tribe still has a lot of very important positions within the government, well, which they were not elected into. Additionally, even though the country ostensibly is still uh, based on democratic institutions, there have not been elections uh, since the takeover. Now, that's understandable, considering the war, um, but this is still somewhat of an issue, I think. Could you just, um, I suppose, make, make, make sense of that? So when you say it's, it is democratic, but there haven't been elections, in what way is it? You know, I understand that in a civil war, or you know, it's, it's not normal to have elections in the middle of a war, but then what do you mean when you say it is ostensibly democratic? Ostensibly democratic in that they have not uh, abandoned the idea of elections they are not talking about implementing, uh, you know, Sharia law or something like this. Um, all of the institutions still remain, but those things uh, have not been like like a firm election date has not been established, for instance. Um, so ostensibly, those those structures still exist, um, but uh, in terms of the encroachment of certain Islamist things. Um, there were reports that um, women can't leave the territory that the Houthis control without a mahram, without a um, a male uh, companion of some sort. Um, that's not formal, but that has been reported by by numerous people. Um, there was a new uh, almsgiving tax that was explicitly modeled on uh, the Islamic uh, pillar of zakat. Uh, this used to be a law that was on the books uh, before the Houthis took over, but it was a massive expansion of it. Um, and as well, um, from above, uh, there is uh, oppression of religious minorities in similar ways that Iran uh, does. Uh, the Baha'is, for instance, who are not a large population in Yemen. Um, Abdel Malik al-Houthi uh, has targeted them in speeches and uh, the state has cracked down on them. Um, certain things. Uh, not nearly as much as the Islamic Republic of Iran has, but cer- certainly the idea that this is a firmly secular Republican state, I, I-, I think it's a bit questionable. And on specifically the slavery issue, which is sort of what we what we've heard so much about. I mean, do you what should we make of that? Um, I think this this is a thing that is frustrating about human rights in Iran and human rights in Yemen. Is that everything? Well, like like I'm not expecting these countries to be run like in such a squeaky clean leftist manner that I, I give my full throated defense to it. But so, but the discussion of human rights is so contaminated by articles from Saudi newspapers. The slavery thing that you're mentioning, it's an article from Asharq al-Awsat, which is a Saudi government owned paper. And its assertion is that all of these Houthi leaders literally have house slaves in their offices. What one one can assume that this is that this is something that was propagated during the civil war in order to you you know be be some sort of slander against the organization. And additionally, when you 
you try and find articles about um, taxation or, or uh, corruption in the government. Everything seems all right, but then other things the author has written, I, I mean, I found one just today where the author said that uh, the Houthis were lying about what sort of government they wanted because they were engaging in the Shia tactic of Taqiyya, in which they lie about their true intentions. It shouldn't be this hard to determine what is fact and what is fiction. But because of the campaign by the Saudis, by governments like it, uh, the, the pool has been made muddy unnecessarily. Uh, and it makes discussions like these uh, abominable. Um, like the, the slavery thing that you were mentioning. Uh, I kept seeing that article like passed around, passed around. And I, I, was, I was amazed that nobody like investigating the, the source and just kind of like saying that this is, that this is obviously correct. Um, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was maddening. You mean obviously incorrect or obviously sort of biased, obviously sort of uh, coming with a... Obviously yeah. biased, obviously incorrect. Like, like it, it, it struck me as someone trying to oppose the Houthi blockade in the Red Sea and then Googling uh, Houthis slaves and then putting the first thing in that they found. Like that was the level that I was Yeah, I, I think the claim that went viral in here was maybe made by Zach Goldsmith, who's a sort of British conservative politician. And actually in the community, you know, underneath it, it was that article from um, that, 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 that Saudi article that you, you mentioned. I suppose I asked you because for, for me, I look at that, I've got no idea what that website is, um, which I suppose... No, it, it, it relies on people seeing that there's an English language article on a newspaper that looks professional and... You have no reason to, like, it doesn't strike you as like a conspiracy theorist type article. It strikes you as something that's been made out of a bureau and looks, went through all the, the necessary uh, fact-checking processes, but it, direct, it comes directly from the Saudi government, along with many other things. Okay, let's take a quick break. We've had a, I mean, I think a really excellent intro um, to the recent politics of Yemen and the Houthis. Um, in the second part of the conversation, we're going to talk about you know, the conflict in the Red Sea, the Houthis' um, relation to the war in Gaza. Um, as usual, um, the second part of this conversation is going to be for Patreon subscribers. If you aren't one already, it's only £3 a month. You can go to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. <laughs> 